You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, please visit Stonegate.Church. So today we are back in the book of James, and if you've been along for the ride, you've heard Jimmy do a great job the last couple of weeks working through the back half of James chapter 1. And today, we are scheduled to be in James chapter 2. That's the, the, the text that we were scheduled to kind of move into and work through this morning. Uh, but we are going to uh, take a break uh, from the normal schedule. And uh, we are clearly in a unique season in your life, my life, the life of our church. So we want to look at a couple of passages in James and prioritize them because we think that they actually have a unique word for us, this church family, in this particular season. So next week, just to whet your appetite, we're going to work through a passage that's going to put a beautiful gift in your hand. It's a gift that springs from a heart of faith. It's a gift that every one of our neighbors are going to need to receive from us. That's next week. We're going to talk about a gift that James wants to put in our hand. But this week, I want to consider a passage that puts something solid under our feet, that puts something solid under our feet. And Stonegate, don't we need that on a week like this? in a season like this, in a time like this, something solid that we can stand on, plant our life upon, feel sure about. That's what James wants to give us in James chapter four. Now, let me just remind you a couple of things about the letter of James. James is penned by a person. Uh, His name is James. Uh, The title gives it away. Uh, James was the half-brother of Jesus, and our man James was the pastor of of that early church in Jerusalem. That that church in Jerusalem was made up of Jewish Christians. And the book of Acts shows us in Acts chapter 8 that persecution erupted in Jerusalem. And when that persecution broke out, it scattered the church that James was pastoring. They were literally scattered across the known world. So just imagine that for a moment. Put yourself in their shoes. Just, Just for a moment. Imagine, uh, picture yourself in Syria. That might be a modern day example where life is so bad and so difficult and so harsh, your best option is to pack up what you can fit in a bag and just make a run for it. That's the people James is pastoring. They've shown up in a new place with new people in a different culture, trying to find a new job. This is the lives of those that he is speaking to, that he's pastoring. This is the, the lives of the people that he's writing this particular letter to. They are scattered Christians who are suffering. And he's writing as their pastor, as their pastor to help them, to encourage them. This is why he starts off the, the letter in James 1, 2 by, by saying, Consider it pure joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Uh, But then you get to chapter 4, and James has some pointed words for his suffering people. But uh, the purpose of those pointed words were to put something solid under their feet, uh, to give them something sure and steady to to put their life on and to build their life on. And it's amazing how uh, those words, James, the pastor, is speaking to his people a couple of thousand years ago, how timely they are for you and me today. So here are these words in James chapter 4. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a town and spend a year and, and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. 
Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. What a passage. Now I want to take that passage in a couple of parts. We'll just use two questions to, to help us work through James's words here in chapter 4. Uh, two questions. Here, here are the two questions I want to consider with you. What is your life? What is your life? And then secondly, why does that matter? What is your life and why does it matter? First, what is your life? That question shows up in verse 14. In a lot of ways, it lies at the heart of this passage. It, it drives down into the territory and the issues that James uh, wants to speak into. What is your life? Stonegate, your answer to that question is important massively important. What is your life? Imagine someone taking a piece of paper, sliding it in front of you, and on the top of that paper is that question. What is your life? How would you respond to that? How would you describe your life? How would you answer that question? What is your life? Well, here is how Pastor James answers the question. What is your life? For you. For you are a mist, for you are a mist. What is your life? A mist, a vapor. Now, let's think that through. What is that saying about our life? What is James trying to convey to you and I when he says, this is what your life is. It is a mist. It's a vapor. What is he trying to convey to us? Well, there is probably a couple of things. One is your life is short. Life is short. By saying your life is a vapor, a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. James is reminding us, he's, he's asking us to reckon with the mist of our life is short. Our life is short. Picture that cold winter morning when you step out the door and you take in a deep cold breath and you blow it out and there it is. You can see the vapor. It comes out of your mouth. But, but it's there for a little time and then vanishes. Pastor James, when we're asking the question, what is our life? He wants us to picture that breath, that little mist, that vapor that's there in one moment and then vanishes. Now, this isn't the only thing the Bible has to say about our life. Other parts of the Bible use different images. Uh, so as a, for instance, take Psalm 103. This is David. In Psalm 103, this is the way David thinks about and describes our life. What is our life? This is David's answer to that. Psalm 103, verses 15 and 16. As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field, for the wind passes over it, and it's gone, and its place knows it no more. David compares our life to grass, to a flower of the field. Now, that's a humbling comparison, isn't it? To grass, to, to a flower of the field. It, it sprouts, it grows, it's full of life and vitality, and then after one short season, it's gone. Its place remembers it no more. In Psalm 90, Moses compares our life to a dream or to a shadow. And when answering the question, what is your life? Pastor James wants you to picture these sorts of things. It's a mist. It's, it's grass. It's like a flower of the field. It's a dream. It's a shadow. Now, 
James tells us what our life is, but James doesn't tell us why our life is what it is. He doesn't answer the question of why it's like that. But the rest of the scriptures fill in the sort of space for us. The rest of the scriptures show us, tell us why our life is the way that it is. The Bible as a whole shows us that death was not in God's original design. If you go to Genesis 1 and 2, death is not a part of the equation. It's not a part of God's design. We were made immortal. Not, not like the mist. We, we were made immortal. But death, like an intruder, broke into God's creation through the window of sin. If you remember Genesis chapter 3, our first parents, Adam and Eve, sinned against God. And Romans 5 says that through that sin, that, that first original sin, th through that sin, death spread to us all. Not only did Adam and Eve die, but their children died, their children's children died, all of their descendants all the way down into us now have a short life. Now our life went from immortal to mist. This is the reason our life is what it is. But that's not where James stops when he's describing our life. He doesn't just say, hey, your, your life is a mist. It, it's here one day and then gone tomorrow. It's, it's short. He also has something else to, to tell us in the mistiness of our life. It also tells us that life is unpredictable. You see this in verse 14. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. That's part of our life being a mist. It's unpredictable. A few months ago, Tony Evans preached his wife's funeral. Gosh, I cannot imagine a more difficult task than that. And while he was preaching her funeral, I, I love one of the things he talked about. As he was talking about the, the unpredictability of life, he, he used this incredible imagery. He said, you know, um, at the end of the day, you really don't know how old you are. You don't know that. Because your age is not determined by your birth date. It's determined by your death date. So if you're um, watching this and you're 70 years old, but your death date is like 95, well, you're still pretty young. But on the other hand, if you're 25, but, but your death date is 27, well, you're pretty old. Because he went on to say, because at the end of the day, your age is not determined by your birth date. It's determined by your death date, right? It's it just unpredictable. We don't know how long our life is going to be. But it's not just the range of our life that's unpredictable. It's also the ride of our life. Both the range and the ride are both unpredictable. When you're born, it's as if you were buckled into a roller coaster and you just should anticipate left turns, right turns, sudden drops. Out of nowhere, a virus sweeps through the world. Seriously, that's our life. Who six months ago could have predicted a pandemic? No one, because life is unpredictable. And Pastor James is reacquainting us to life in a fallen world. This is what it looks like. It's a mist. It's like grass, like a dream, like a shadow. It's short and unpredictable. Now, here's the turn. Here's the turn. Why does James bring this up to these suffering saints? Uh, because on the surface, it doesn't feel very soothing, does it? It doesn't feel very comforting on the surface. So, so why is it that James goes here? And I think this is the answer. Because wisdom awaits those 
who reckon with their mistiness. Wisdom awaits those who will reckon with their mistiness. It's the same reason that Moses in Psalm 90 verse 12 says, so teach us. He's praying this to God. So, so God, teach us to number our days so that we may gain a heart of wisdom. God, show us the brevity of our life. And in that, would you please impart, impart to our hearts wisdom. Wisdom awaits those who reckon with their mistiness. And that leads to our second question. Question one, what is life? It's a miss. Question two, why does that matter? Why does it matter that our life is a mist? What wisdom does reckoning with our mistiness impart to us? What sort of wisdom is on the other side of, of reckoning with these things? Uh, well, gosh, that could probably be multiple uh, sermons. Uh, but let me just give you a couple from this passage, uh, things that James shows us here. Uh, what sort of wisdom comes by reckoning with our mistiness? Well, here's one thing we could, uh, we could say. Reckoning with our mistiness shows us who holds the world. Who holds the world? Or you could state it in a negative way. That's positive. Here's the negative way to say it. Um, reckoning with our mistiness. What, what is our life? It's a vapor. It's here one day and gone the next. Reckoning with our mistiness has a way of punching through the illusion of control that we sort of live within. It has a way of just helping that illusion to crumble so that we can see life for, for what it actually is. In the end, all of us live in either one of two worlds. And here are the two worlds. We're all living in one of these two. Uh, one world is the world that, that God created. That, that's one world that we could be living in. That, that's the real world. Or here's the other world that we might be living in. Uh, we might be living in the, the world that we are attempting to create without God. That, that's our other option. The, the, the real world that God has created or this illusion this, this other world that we're attempting to create without God. In the real world, God is the one who has created all things. He's sovereign over all things. He, he holds the world in his hands. He, he's the one in control. But in this other world, this illusion of a world, the world that we're trying to, to create, attempting to create apart from God, in that world, we, we are trying to wrestle the, the, the world out of God's hand and to put it into our hands as if we're in control, as if we're sovereign, as if we have the power and the wisdom to keep this world spinning rightly. So James addresses that in verses 13 and 14. He says, come now. That, that's a way of James saying, hey, hey stop. L listen to what I'm about to say. C come now, he says. You who say today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. You do not know what, what it will bring. Now, let me be clear. Let me clarify something. James is not against planning. That's not what James is, is doing in this passage. He's not against planning. James is against a certain type of planning. James is against a, a self-reliant planning. He is against this self-dependent planning, this self-exalting planning, this, this way of planning that just 
forgets God, does not factor God in, assumes in our planning that, that we actually hold the world together, that the world is in our hands, that, that we can see the future, not God, that we hold the world, not God, that we're in control, not God. That's the sort of planning that James is, is against. That's the sort of planning that he doesn't like. So in verse 15, to show a contrast, he says this. Instead, he's saying, when you plan, instead you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. Now, think about that for a moment. Verse 15 has the exact same plans. You're thinking about the future and you're going to do this or that. It has the exact same plans. But verse 15 also has a new posture. Same plans, new posture. You see it in that little phrase, if the Lord wills. If the Lord wills. Now, again, let me clarify something that I think could be easily confused here. The point James is making is not every time you do anything, articulate that phrase. Say those words. That's not his point. The point isn't articulating a phrase, the, the point is an attitude of your heart. James is not after a certain set of words. He's after a new way of seeing the world. He's trying to get us out of the illusion that we're in control, the world's in our hands, and he wants us to see differently. He wants us to, to see the world like it is in the hands of God. God. God is the one who controls all things, sees all things, has planned all things. Verse 15, same plans. But those four words there in verse 14 describe a whole new posture. A posture of dependence, of surrender. God, God, my life is in your hands, and I'm acknowledging that. In all of my planning, in every day, my life is in your hands. Oh, oh God, you hold the world, not me. That's the posture of verse 15. Now, consider the contrast. Think verse 15. In verse 15, Jesus enjoys the plants. In verse 13, Jesus calls the plans evil. Verse 15, much pleasure in the plans. Verse 13, these plans, I, I, I hate. They're, they're full of evil and boasting and, and arrogance and, and pride. Look at it in verse 16. This is Jesus' verdict on the plans of verses 13 and 14. Verse 16, as it is, you boast in your arrogance, all such boasting is evil. All such boasting is evil. Every under, under every attempt to, to wrestle the world out of the hands of God, out of every attempt to make our plans, plans all the while forgetting God, under every one of those moments is pride. Arrogance, boasting, self-reliance. I, I love the way John Stott talks about pride. He says, for it is the stubborn refusal. This is what pride is. It's the stubborn refusal to let God be God with the corresponding ambition to take God's place. It is the attempt to dethrone God and enthrone ourself. Now, James is a pastor. He, he knows his people. And, and like us, he knows that people are prone to pride, especially while suffering. 
He knows that, that we are all quick to begin to wrestle with God for control of the world. Uh, to look up at God and to say, no, God, th this world belongs in my hands. I, I know what this world needs. It needs more of my wisdom, my power, my strength. So God, you please get out of the way. And God, I'm going to do the directing for a while. He knows we're all prone to seeing the world like that. And James is here in this passage saying, no, no, R remember what is your life? It's a mist. You don't hold the world, God does. You see it in the life of King Nebuchadnezzar, if you remember back in the book of Daniel in the Old Testament. One night he looks upon the great city of Babylon and he says, look at this great city, which I have built with my own hands. I mean, look, look at this amazing place. Look at what I have done. That, that is King Nebuchadnezzar wrestling for control of the world. It's wrestling the world out of God's hands and putting it in his own. So in an act of love, God puts a sharp turn, a sudden drop before King Nebuchadnezzar, not to hurt him, but to awaken him. To, to awaken him to the reality that King Nebuchadnezzar, you don't hold the world in your hands. God is saying in that moment, no, I do, I do. In Stonegate, might God in his mercy be doing something similar to us? Might God as our good shepherd and pastor be saying something similar to us? Uh, do you know what's worse than a pandemic? A wasted pandemic. That's what's worse than a pandemic, is one that we would waste. So here's the question that I have been consistently trying to keep before the Lord this week. Father, what do you want to use this moment to teach me, to show me? What do you want me to learn about you and me and the world that you have put me in? God, God what, do you, what do you want from me? And here's one thing that... I have just consistently heard back from the Lord this week. I have heard the Lord just consistently repeating, Rodney, the world isn't spinning because you tell it to. Your heart isn't beating because you tell it to. Human power has its limits. That the world isn't in human hands, the world is in my hands. My hand. I am the one who holds the world. I, I have thought so much about that little song, simple song that I learned as a six-year-old little boy. He's got the whole world in his hands. And the mistiness of our life teaches us that. And do you know what that means? He's got the whole world in his hands. Do you know what that means for every son and daughter of God? Everyone that is in Christ? Here's what that means for you. The same God who holds the world, he has you. He has you. You right now are in his hands. Not just the world, but your life is in his hands. He, he has you. Now, whose hands would you rather be in today? Would you rather be in your weak, feeble hands that don't have the power to care for your life and to control your life? Or would you rather be in the hands of an all-wise, all-powerful, 
tender-hearted God who has pledged himself to be for you forever. Whose hands would you rather be in? I'm going to take God's. I'm going to go in that direction. That, that, that feels better than me trying to control my life and, and make sense of my life. At Stonegate, I have no idea what the next month holds or, gosh, even for that matter, what the next minute holds. But do you know what we all know as a church family? We know who holds the next month. We know who holds the next minute. And that God who holds the months, holds the minutes, he has you. He has me. He has our church family. And is there a more secure, stable place to be than in the hands of our God? I I don't think so. This is James giving us something rock solid to put under our feet. Our mistiness shows us something about our life. It shows us who holds the world. But it also does something else. It doesn't just show us who holds the world. It also beckons us. It it invites us to do all the good we can while we can. Uh, Your mistiness, my mistiness, the fact that, that our life is a vapor, both the range and the ride of our life, so unpredictable. Our mistiness beckons us. It pulls us in and invites us to do all the good we can while we can. Now, you see this in verse 17, and it's not a clear connection, so so hang with me here. Uh, Look at verse 17. James says, So whoever knows the right thing to do and then fails to do it, for him it is sin. Verse 17. Now, in this verse, part of what James is doing is widening our view of sin. Uh, We have a natural way of thinking about sin um, like this. Um, We sin when we actively do something that we shouldn't do. That's how most of us think about sin. It's sins of commission, sins that we actively go about doing that we know break God's law. But James is is alerting us here that that is not the only category of sin in the scriptures. There's also another category of sin. Not just sins of commission, but sins of omission. Sins of omission we passively commit by refusing to do the good that Jesus has set in front of us. That those are sins of omission. Now, then comes the question, well, how in the world is verse 17 connected to the wider point that James is, is making? So let's think this through for a moment. Uh, verse 17 is really, in a lot of ways, James at his abrupt best. I mean, it feels like he's going in this direction and just whips the wheel to the left and and comes back in this direction. It it feels that way. But that's not what's happening here. Uh, That first word in verse 17, so, shows us, James is not going in a new direction in this moment. He is still teasing out the exact same theme. He's he's chasing and after the exact uh, same theme. Uh, But how does that fit? Well, let's think that through. Consider the logic here. James, in verse 14, asked the question, what is your life? He gave an answer. Your life is a vapor. It's here for a little time. Not not a long time, just a little time. Then it vanishes. So what wisdom flows from that fact? Well, if our life is short and unpredictable, then, I think this is James' logic, how he gets to verse 17. If that's true, then 
Every son and daughter of God should spend the mist of their life not, not just avoiding bad things, no, no, not just avoiding things, but doing all we can while we can, all the good we can, everywhere we can, while we can. That, that's James's point. Let's spend the mist of our life in the best way, not just avoiding things, but, but doing wonderful things. At Stonegate, every day is a gift from God, isn't it? Every day we, we receive to God as a mercy straight from his hand. And when we begin to see our life that way, we're receiving every day as a gift from him, then, then every day is full of opportunities. Every day is full of opportunities to do all the good we can while we can. With the so of verse 17, James is saying, this is his point in verse 17, James is saying, when you see a good to do, then, then get about doing that good. When you see a need to meet, well, well your life is short, so, so meet that need. When you find a burden to bear, don't, don't wait for tomorrow. Don't wait for a month or a year. When you find a burden to bear, come up under that burden for the sake of a, of a dear brother or sister and bear that burden with them. Go and do all the good you can while you can. If there's a person to forgive, now's the time to go do that good. If there's a brother or sister to encourage, now is the time to go do that good. If there is a grace you need to give to someone, James's point is your life is a mist. So, so while you can, do all the good that you can. That's the point. Now, Stonegate, let's just take a moment to apply this to, to your life and mine. We are in the midst of a pandemic. God has providentially, th through a pandemic, God has providentially and is providentially bringing into our life a million good things to do, a million right things to do, just a million Jesus-displaying things for us to do. So what timely words from James? This is a moment for us before God to, to reckon with the mistiness of our life and then resubmit the mist of our life back to God and say, we are in, God, we are in for doing all the good we can while we can. Every, every opportunity, everything you bring before me, God, God, yes, all the good we can while we can. And church, just as a church family, as a whole, this is our commitment to the Lord. We are committed to spending the next few minutes and months and years, decades of our life together as a church, come what may, to do all the good we can while we can. That's, that's our commitment as a church. Now, next week, uh, church family, we are going to introduce a new initiative in the life of our church called Love Thy Neighbor. And in this initiative... We're going to encourage every single person who makes up our church family to pray by name and to meet a need. Pray by name and meet a need. To pray by name, to find neighbors, coworkers, friends that you can call, that you can, you can pray for by name, that you can find needs to pray for. And then when you discover those needs, that you would meet the need. Pray by name and meet a need. Next week, we're going to kind of 
walk us into to this season in the life of our church. And, and listen, Stonegate, many of those needs are going to be spiritual. We had a couple uh, just a couple of weeks ago come into our church offices terrified, scared, and we got a chance to talk to them. We got a chance to point them to the risen Jesus. We got a chance to share the good news of Jesus with them. And in that moment, in that office, Jesus saved them. The, the resurrected Jesus rescued them. We're going to have just countless opportunities like that. So let's, let's pray for them. Let's pray that God would give us eyes to, to see them and a heart to take them. Many of those needs are going to be spiritual. And many of those needs are also going to be material and physical. Uh, people are going to need help. People are going to have burdens for us as a church family to bear. In church, uh, let me just tell you our commitment before the Lord we want to be known as a people who refuse to pass over needs. We want to be a people like that, who just refuse to, to walk around, to ignore, to pass over the needs of those around us. And James is reminding us why we want to be a church like that. Because our life is a mist. It's, it's here one day and gone the next. So church, let's freshly commit again to doing all the good we can while we can. Now I want to get to the last idea. What sort of wisdom does reckoning with the mistiness of our life bestow to us? Uh, what sort of wisdom is that? Well, it shows us who holds the world. It, it beckons us to do all the good we can while we can. Uh, but, but maybe most importantly, what the mistiness of our life produces, what it does for us, is it turns our gaze up and points us to the resurrected Jesus, to, to the risen Jesus. You know, when you think about the mistiness of your life, that it's short and unpredictable, when you think about that, there's really only three options you have. There's really only three. Um, one option is thinking about that and reckoning with our mistiness could lead us to despair. It could lead us to despair. Do you know why we grieve our mistiness, the brevity and the shortness of our life? Here's the reason. You weren't made to be a mist. You were made to be immortal. That's why you grieve it. But... We can grieve it in such a way where that grief turns into dark despair. Dark despair. When Jesus is left out of the mistiness of our life, what, what other option is there? If Jesus isn't in the equation, grief turns dark really quickly, turns into despair. And I, I don't blame a person. When I, when I reckon with the mistiness of my life, Apart from Jesus, it produces despair within me. I, I don't like the fact that my life is short. I don't like the fact that my life is unpredictable. And I actually appreciate every atheist who will deal with that honestly. And listen to one, Dan Barker. Listen to him in an interview, just being honest about the despair that, that our mistiness apart from Jesus produces. He says, in the end, in the end of the cosmos, it's not going to matter. In the big picture, you and I are like ants or rats or like pieces of broccoli. There is no value to our species. 
We have no, uh, we are no different than a piece of broccoli in the cosmic sense. If there's no difference between you and broccoli, broccoli, of all the vegetables, broccoli, if there's no difference between you and broccoli, despair sounds pretty reasonable to me, right? Apart from Jesus, this is where the mistiness of our life takes us, all the way down into the darkness of despair. But despair is, is a difficult thing to deal with. And so for some, they bypass despair. They, they go around despair and they go to the land of denial. That's another option. We can just deny the mistiness of our life. Uh, Woody Allen, another uh, atheist, he, he says it this way. He says, I have a very grim, pessimistic view of life. I, have, I, I always have since I was a little boy. It, it's this grim, painful, nightmarish, meaningless experience. Now listen to what he says here. He says, the only way you can be happy is if you tell yourself some lies and deceive yourself. One must have one's delusions to live. If you look at life too honestly and clearly, life becomes unbearable because it's a pretty grim experience. That's our other option. Apart from Jesus, we go into despair, and when despair just gets too dark for us, we bypass it, we, we go through it, and we go over into the land of denial. He, he says that the only way you can be happy is if you tell yourself some sort of lies and deceive yourself. So that's one option with our mistiness, denial. We just bury our heads in the sand. We distract ourselves to death. Right? We just we deceive ourselves. But church, the scriptures give us a third way, another way. The mistiness of our life can produce in us a willingness to lift our gaze up above this life all the way up to our risen Jesus. We can turn our attention to his perfect life, the life he lived for you. We can turn our attention to his sacrificial death where he substituted himself in our place for our sin. And then we can turn our gaze up to the resurrection where Jesus on the third day busts out of the grave showing his power over Satan's sin and death. We can turn our gaze to, to that Jesus. And when we turn our gaze up to Jesus, when we let, when we let Jesus into the mistiness of our life, the darkness of despair turns into day for us. It turns into day. Jesus opens up a whole new world of possibilities for every one of his, for, for all of those that are in him. Here's one way to think about the, the entire story of the Bible. You could think about it like this. Sin came in, then spread, leading to death. That's chapter one. Chapter two, Jesus' sacrifice came in, then spread, leading to life for all who believe. That's, that is the good news of the gospel. Jesus announces where sin has turned immorality into mist, but where sin has done that, where, where sin invaded the, into God's creation, turning immorality into mist, 
Jesus' sacrifice turns our mistiness back into immorality. Or as Jesus says in John chapter 11, and I'll finish with this. Jesus says, I am, I, I really am, he's saying, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. In Stonegate, I'll leave you with this last question that Jesus asked. Do you believe this? Do you believe this? Will you pray with me? And I want to give you just a moment right where you are. If you're in your living room, in your car, wherever you are, I want to give you just a moment to deal with the Lord. I want to give you a moment for the Spirit of God to press into you what would be most helpful right now in your life. To wipe away the things that wouldn't be helpful. Have you reckoned with your mistiness? With the brevity of your life? Have you reckoned with it? Because it's only in reckoning with our mistiness that God puts something stable under our feet. It's when we reckon with our mistiness that God shows us that, that he really is the one who holds the world. And everyone who will surrender to that, who will stop wrestling with God, trying to get the world out of his hands and back into yours, for everyone who will surrender to that, he, he makes this promise. Yeah, I who hold the world, I have you. I have you. I have your life. I have everything you need. You, you are safe and secure in me. Reckoning with our mistiness beckons us to do all the good we can while we can. Reckoning with our mistiness points us up to the person of Jesus, our risen Savior, the, the resurrection and the life. Have you received Jesus? If not, God stands ready and willing this morning. The only thing between us and God today is us. His arms are open. Make this your morning. Make this that decisive step of faith where you turn from your sin and you throw your life upon the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. This morning, there where you are, hold up your life to God and say to him, I am trusting Jesus to make me right with you. And this morning, wherever you are, God will reach down into your soul and save you. Father, we love you. We are thankful for the scriptures. We are thankful for passages like this that puts solid rock under our feet. And Father, we, as, as your church, are saying to you today, we trust you.
we know that we're in your hands. God, we are listening to you as you beckon us to do all the good we can while we can. And oh God, would you keep our gaze fixed upon your beloved son? And it's in your beautiful name that we pray. Amen.